Today in the RPG Talk Show, we are going to look at the Shadow of the Weird Wizard Kickstarter, which is coming out soon. We're going to look at 500-Year-Old Vampire, a new game based on 1,000-Year-Old Vampire that's available on Backer Kit. Fantasy Age 2 was released in a physical version. The Hydra Co-op Old School Group has a new bundle of holding that's out. Albear Rodeo 2.0 is officially released. And we're going to take a, a deep dive into the topic of which RPGs are most GM-friendly. And we're going to look at questions from the July 2023 Patreon q all today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things in role-playing games. Some weeks I don't have a lot of news, and some weeks I have a lot of news. And this week is a lot of news week. So Shadow of the Weird Wizard is a role-playing game developed by Robert Schwab. Robert Schwab is an incredible veteran in this industry. He's made been working on it since like 3rd edition of D&D. He worked on 4th edition of D&D, 5th edition of D&D. Came out with his own role-playing game called Shadow of the Demon Lord. Very popular role-playing game really really fun really cool i played it my players played it we loved it i'm really excited for it but it is a very grim very body horror focused role-playing game it's definitely not for everybody and he had talked for a long time years i played a prototype of shadow of the weird wizard like four or five years ago of a more mainstream traditional fantasy role-playing game that is based on ideas from shadow of the demon lord called shadow of the weird wizard he has done so he is finally getting ready to launch a kickstarter for it which means he's got to have a lot in fact there's a playtest version of it floating around that looks quite extensive and quite well done the kickstarter is coming out you can be notified of the launch i don't normally promote a kickstarter that hasn't yet launched on the kickstarter but you can be notified and this is one that i've been following for a long time so i'm very excited for it you can find a link to it we will talk about it more when the shadow of the weird wizard kickstarter actually launches but i'm very happy to see that he's already got 18 more than 1800 followers that are on it that's you know you can generally get a like an order of magnitude sign on like how well the kickstarter is going to do by how many followers you can see that are following it that's a pretty good amount of followers so i really hope the kickstarter does well i'm very excited for it i'm very excited to see what goes on because i love shadow the weird wizard 500 year old vampire is a new version of the solo rpg called thousand year old vampire which is they have a name for it it's like a solo journaling role-playing game or something like that and i picked up i mean i don't know how i managed it but i managed to pick up one of the original thousand year old vampire role-playing games it's when you get it it's like a journal that you found in an old trunk from like the 1800s it looks physically like this old journal and inside are like little notes are stuck in there lots of interesting graphics lots of stuff and it's a journaling role-playing game it gives you prompts you sort of roll randomly i think you roll randomly or you select randomly i don't remember exactly how the the, the random nature of it comes in it's been a while since i ran it but it's this really fun way of sort of you creating a story for a character from the bottom to the top and it's like all of the different major events that have happened in the life of a thousand year old vampire which is really cool so 500 year old vampire is a card based game it comes with a bunch of cards in a box and it's apparently a multiplayer version that you and other players can play this together i don't really get exactly how that works but it seems to be sort of like in me it's a little fiasco like it could kind of be neat if it's a little fiasco like like i only heard about it yesterday but you can find a link in the show notes below to read more about it there's apparently a video where they talk about what 500 year old vampire is like what the components are but one of the things to note is that one of the things you can get when you back it is one of your optional one of your optional rewards is the book for a thousand year old vampire so if you want that solo journaling version of it you can pick up the solo journaling version of thousand year old vampire by backing the 500 year old vampire backer kit crowdfunding campaign so you can find a link to the show notes below really kind of neat i loved thousand year vampire like it was a really really fun solo rpg experience great way to kind of get your mind working in different ways sort of you know make your brain more elastic as you're coming up with these stories as you go and writing it down really fun adventure so check that check that out 
Fantasy Age 2 has been officially released. Green Ronin's fantasy role-playing game, Fantasy Age 2, based on the Age system. The Age system originally was part of a role-playing game IP connected to Dragon Age, so they got the Age from Dragon Age. And it is a pretty straightforward D&D-esque style role-playing game, but it uses 3D6 instead of a D20. You roll 3D6 to determine your attacks and everything like that, and one of those dice is like a stunt die, and if that one rolls a certain roll, you get a stunt. And it's a really neat sort of mid- mid-complexity RPG. It is not your old-school, grim and perilous role-playing game. It is more of, and it's not the pure high fantasy super mechanics of either 5th edition or Pathfinder. It is definitely more in the middle. Uh, You have these stunts that your characters can do, these sort of cool options that your characters can do, but the way you actually can invoke a stunt is by having a certain role come up on a stunt die. Really neat system. I've only played it like once at like a convention. I played like a one-shot game. I haven't spent a lot of time with it, but I have the original Fantasy Age book on the shelf. So you can pick up the physical version over at Green Ronin. You can also pick up the PDF version from Green Ronin or Drive Through RPG. You can find links in the show notes below. I didn't actually know it was available on a PDF, so I'm excited for it. And I'm going to go pick it up. I'm going to I'm gonna pick up the PDF because I think it looks really cool. And if I end up actually running games in it, I would probably go get the physical version as well. That's typically my sort of definition of when I get a physical version is do I think I'm actually going to run it? If I think I'm going to run it, I like to get a physical version. If I don't think I'm going to run it, but I like something I want to look at, then I get the PDF version. That way, I mean, my room is already packed with books of systems that some of which, most of which I have run, some of which I haven't, but, but I want to pick it up. So yeah, you can pick up the PDF for Fantasy H2 or the physical version from Green Ronin themselves or the PDF from Drive-Thru RPG. Looks neat. Hydra Co-op is a group of developers, designers who have focused a lot on old school style games, hex crawls, point crawls, old school dungeon kind of things. And they have a collection of a bunch of different products that they put together in the called the Hydra Collection. $15 gets you access to a whole bunch of different products. What Ho Frog Demon is, I think, one of my favorite titles for a... One of my favorite titles for an adventure. Really cool set. I picked up the bundle. I already had a bunch of them, but the bundle was such a good deal that I ended up picking up a, a bundle. If you are familiar with the ideas of like hex crawls and point crawls, particularly the Hills Canton blog, which has a lot of good material on it. The author of the Hills Canton blog is one of the main authors of a lot of these products. So here's an example, like What Ho Frog Demons, which I think is just such an awesome title. And um, you know, very kind of straightforward, cool, like line art focused adventure. There's actually the the... the the package that you get from uh, Bundle of Holding actually includes a few different adventures that can be interlinked together and sort of into sort of a big campaign. A lot of really neat ideas, good ideas about like how to run towns and cities, but a lot on running hex crawls. Like you, you can see here, a clear focus on a hex crawl, hexes of interest, you know, the things going on there. And then digging into some of these where they are bigger uh, areas, you get into dungeon maps and things like that. So it looks really cool. You know, I, what ho frog demons I've had for a while now, but some of the other ones I have not. So it's a cool, cool option. Here's an example of like a, the frog demon temple. Who doesn't love frog demon temples? I do. I can't wait to go into a frog demon temple. So really neat stuff. If you're looking for a, a big pile of old school style adventures and you want to take a look at them. And again, old school style adventures, very easy to convert into just about any of your fantasy role playing games because they're so lightweight and they're sort of focused on what the specific things are in the world. There's not tons of mechanics or stat blocks or skill challenges or anything out that sort of fill out the, the adventure. It's just straightforward what's there and what you can do about it. And you can convert a lot of it over to 5e or anything else very easily. So I, I get a lot of value out of these things when I'm looking at them. A lot of ideas. That looks, that's Kermit the Frog. That's Kermit the Frog with a gem in his mouth. Almost certainly. 
Hmm. Don't take that gem. So check that out. The Hydra Cooperative Collection. 15 bucks on Bundle of Holding. You can find a link to that in the show notes. Check it out. It is a really good deal for some really cool products. My favorite virtual tabletop, Owlbear Rodeo, has officially released Owlbear Rodeo version 2. I have been using version 2 of Owlbear Rodeo myself for my Scarlet Citadel game. They have, they've had a beta that they've had going on for some time, and it's been a really, really good beta process. From the early, they, they put it out early. They got a lot of feedback. They've changed a lot of stuff. It is definitely a little more complicated than Owlbear 1 was so if you were used to Albert 1.0 it's a little takes a little bit of work to get your brain around exactly how Albert 2.0 works however many of the features that Albert 2.0 has make it worth the effort to switch over and that's things like being able to store all of your maps locally or store all of your maps on their server so that whatever browser you happen to be using you can always connect back to the the setup you have they do have a pay model now the pay gives you access to persistent storage and larger amounts of storage if you want to do it I am a paying subscriber to Albear Rodeo because I use it so much and I love it so much. It also has a really robust plugin feature where you can bring in lots of different plugins for things. There's a plugin called Clash that I've been using with Albear Rodeo that lets you bring in monsters from Open5e, which is all of the monsters from the 5.1 SRD, Level Up Advanced 5e, and various Cobalt Press books, which means you can get all of these monsters in there, throw them in initiative, get their stat blocks, things like that. It has other plugins for things like rings that you can put around characters, lots of different things. So I really, really like like Albert Rodeo 2.0. Very happy to hear that they have released it officially as the main version of Albert. They have also taken Albert 1.0 and released it under an open license. So you can actually go get Albert 1.0. I haven't done so. I don't know exactly how hosting it works. I remember Albert Rodeo 1.0 was a very client-focused very client-focused virtual tabletop where you like downloaded it all to your browser and once it was inside your browser then other people connected to your browser they didn't go through a centralized server so if you're a little worried that albert rodeo is going to turn into this process where like i don't know elon musk buys it and then it turns into a terrible thing and you're worried about that i mean you know 150 maybe wizards of the coast pays 150 million dollars to buy albert rodeo after their 3d virtual tabletop doesn't work out then and you're worried about that Albert 1.0 being available so that you could host it somewhere else is a good idea. I don't think that's going to happen. I'm pretty sure. I mean, I'd be great for that. There's two creators that make Albert Rodeo. I wish them the best. If they were to get a $150 million bailout, I would not, not bailout. If they were to sell Albert Rodeo for $150 million, I would be very happy for them. That would be outstanding. So I would not be like, oh, I can't believe you sold out. Like $150 million? Go ahead and sell out. However, if we're looking for another one, it's possible that having Albert Rodeo 1.0 the source code out there means we could host Albert Rodeo in different ways as well. But I'm really not worried about that. I like 2.0. I'm using 2.0. It's a fantastic virtual tabletop. I'm hearing more about it. I just heard uh, Russ from N-World was talking about it on their awesome podcast. You should check out their podcast too. It's an excellent podcast. They, he was talking about how he has been using Albert Rodeo 1.0 or Albert Rodeo for his, for his games. So just a fantastic virtual tabletop. I've done other videos. I probably am going to do another video where I dive deep into Albert Rodeo and how I've been using it. I haven't done one because I've been waiting for it to stabilize because a lot of things change. And last time I did a bunch of Albert Rodeo videos, they changed a lot of stuff. And then the video, and then I get a bunch of comments from people like, that's not how it works anymore. I know, I know, like things change. I can't go back and edit a video like that. So really neat stuff. So check out Albert Rodeo 2.0. It's my favorite virtual tabletop. Lots of different features, lots of functions, but yet most importantly, easy to use. Really easy to use. Default tokens, easy to drop in maps. So easy that you can be adding tokens and 
dropping in new maps during your game, which is something I haven't really seen any other virtual tabletops that can do that well, is the ability to improvise stuff during the game. It's really, really excellent. So check out Albert Rodeo 2.0. So last week, I can't remember who brought it up. Somebody please remind me who brought it up. But somebody brought up a really, really good question on Twitch, which was, what RPGs are the most GM-friendly role-playing games? And I was like, it's funny. I've never really thought about it that way. Like, I mean, I know that there are certain role-playing games that I've had an easier time GMing than others, but to the idea of just really focusing down on that idea of like, which ones are most are most GM friendly. And I was like, I don't really know. I had my own answer. I gave it and I'll, I'll give it again in a minute. But it, like what I think doesn't really matter. So we all kind of think like, what are the what are the ones that we see that are the most common? We're like, yeah, those are the easiest to run. So I don't the, the best way that I have to reach a lot of people and get a lot of answers on this is by putting up a post on YouTube, up to, like a text post on YouTube and getting answers from that. And I got about 70 or 80 people who came in and kind of answered their different thing. I took those results. I threw it to a large language model and said, hey, summarize this me and it gave me a summary but of course we have the actual links that we look at too i actually fed it to two different llms like chat gpt and i think i I gave it as an example to what's that new facebook one llama 2 and i got the results from those to kind of and they compared they were pretty close so so we have like the summary of what people said and the most common one there's there's one element of data so we'll look at what they what the results said but there's like an interesting bit of subtext here that i think is really important so Powered by the Apocalypse, four people mentioned Powered by the Apocalypse. They appreciate the emphasis on storytelling and clear guidelines for GM roles and responsibilities. Okay, Shadow Dark was mentioned four times. That's very funny. I've been talking a lot about Shadow Dark. I'm running a Shadow Dark game in like an hour. And it's really kind of interesting that Shadow Dark gets mentioned. I do wonder, is that like, is it because it's the new hotness? Like, have people really been, I mean, obviously, hundreds of DMs have not been running it for years, right? And because it hasn't been out that long. So... You know, which which ones, you know, is Shadow Dark really getting mentioned because it's kind of popular and we're all sort of excited about it? Or is it actually more GM friendly? Hard to hard to say without running it. Index card RPG has been around. It was mentioned four times. Lots of people brought it up and said it's very easy to run. I've heard I haven't run it myself, but I've definitely read it and it looks pretty straightforward. Pathfinder 2 got mentioned three times. Now, I suppose Pathfinder 2 is really easy to GM because once you get into combat, you can go down and play a PlayStation game while everybody's figuring out what they want to do. That's me knocking Pathfinder, sorry. Any of the crunchy systems are like it. Fifth edition is the same way. One thing that I would argue, well, I'll, I'll get into it, but like, you know, yeah, an interesting bit. But like the, the idea that Pathfinder 2 is an easier to GM system, like maybe it is if you really understand the system. But like, boy, I'll tell you, somebody that is running like Pathfinder 2 on Roll20, there's a lot of work involved in that. I would not say that that is a GM friendly system. But that gets into a larger point about GS2. D&D, obviously mentioned three times. People say 5th edition is pretty straightforward. Okay. Mouse Ritter, I have never heard of. So people have been to that two times. Cypher System got mentioned two times. I brought this one up. I said that for all the RPGs I've run, Cypher System was, for me, the easiest to one because mechanically on the GM side, all you have to do is pick a number between 1 and 10, and the rest is just improvising what's going on. I found I found Numenera, which is a Cypher-based role-playing game, to be really, really easy to run just mechanically it was a lot less work for me to to run savage worlds is up here you know a lot of stuff mentioned once savage worlds forged in the dark i mean i i had a hard time with blades in the dark swords and wizardry easy d6 old school essentials vesane vesan vesane mouse guard bx warhammer warhammer tri cube tales in the odd electric bastion star wars genesis adventure cover so a lot of different things and here's the main point it's not so much the summary of what's brought up here it's the fact that clearly no one system dominated the list 
that if you looked at this and you, you know, the highest one got mentioned four times, the lowest got mentioned once. That is a very flat curve. And what that means is, I think this comes as no real surprise. The easiest system is not the same from one GM to another. And it's kind of a cop-out answer. It's kind of a cop-out result that one, one person's system that's easy for them to run is not necessarily that easy to run for another GM. So, you know, three people said Pathfinder 2. And, and again, like, you know, this is what a computer said the people said. So we'd have to go into the actual results. And you can find a link to the actual comments from people to go dig in. Why did the people from Pathfinder say Pathfinder? But, you know, I know that like I look at Powered by the Apocalypse and, you know, I would not say that that is the easiest system, even though it was mentioned more often than that and Shadow Dark were mentioned mentioned too much. But I find Powered by the Apocalypse to be pretty hard to run. And the reason why is most of the time the die roll is landing in the success at a cost, which means as a GM, you have to constantly come up with a, yeah, you were able to do that, but this other thing happens. And it's constant and it's always moving. And whether you're doing combat or whether you're doing role playing or whether you're doing exploration or whatever you're doing in the game, that roll and, and is succeeded at a cost and moving the game forward is a continual thing. There are some GMs who are really good at that and they find, energy grows as they're riffing like that i played with a gm where he was so good at just moving with what we gave him and moving where the story went and we built this cohesive story together at the table and it was beautiful and wonderful and really really fun and he was really really good at it i i struggle with that i find that like every time i have to kind of improvise something like that my energy level is going down a little bit and at the end i'm like oh my god i'm exhausted i felt that way when i ran blades in the dark i felt that way when i've run dungeon world before that the the being always on with improv was actually kind of hard for me to do like i i don't think i'm bad at improv but some people generate energy from it and some are expending energy from it i think i lean more towards the expenditure of energy and then when i play a crunchier game like 5e where we get into a battle and I'm like, oh, thank God. I now have 45 minutes to an hour and a half where I don't have to like constantly be improvising stuff because the mechanics are work walking through it. And I think that might be why Shadow Dark is mentioned as often is because so much of what goes on in Shadow Dark is happening from random encounters and random roles and random situations and things like that that you can't really do a lot of prep that you, you know, you kind of roll and see what happens. And there isn't this constant like success at a cost or, or constant yes, but or yes, and sort of improvisation that might be going i don't know because i haven't played shadow dark yet so we want to see but i think the conclusion that i've come to from kind of digging into this result and hearing from you know about a hundred or so gms on this topic is that there really isn't one system that's easiest for everybody and that familiarity with a system is certainly going to make it better i think that there are certain techniques that we can find in different role-playing game systems that make things a little easier again sort of being able to rely on random tables and random charts i think it, the more you're comfortable with that that could be a value the more you have a system that that clarifies for you what a fail forward looks like or what a succeeded a cost looks like and you know where that's going and you have sort of things that you can fall back to i think that can really help having a mechanical system for me that i can keep in my mind and keep in my brain and just have on hand and then use to help improvise that really helps that's something that i've been trying to bring a lot to 5e if you look at my books like the lazy dm's companion the workbook return of the lazy dungeon master 
Forge of Foes. All of these books are taking some of the crunchier bits of 5th edition and trying to cut them down and streamline them such that you can just keep them in your head and they're ready and available to you to help you improvise during the game. Yes, you could pull up an encounter builder tool or you could use the crazy math that's in the, the Dungeon Master's Guide to try to figure out an encounter or you can just keep the lazy encounter benchmark in your head, do a little bit of math in your head and figure out is this battle going to be deadly or not. Forge of Foes, we have a, a single sheet of paper that I'm we're going to deliver to everybody but as Forge of Foes, we have a, a few different sections but we have a single, single table where you can build any monster from CR0 to CR30 just by looking across the list and then you can improv the rest. That gets closer to that Numenera cipher system style, pick a number between 1 and 10 and that's really all you need, which I found to be really, really fun. When I was running Numenera, I found it to be very useful. So I think the, the results are that, that we all have sort of our favorite systems. We have the things that we like. We take a look at it. I think probably the only really good conclusion that came from this sort of, I, I mean, I haven't, you know, mediocre deep dive, right? Probably the one major conclusion is that we, we have systems that work well for us and we should be working on systems that work well for us and keeping our eyes open to what other systems are bringing to the table. And sometimes we can go look and go, oh yeah, I like 5th edition D&D or I love 5th edition and I'm enjoying running that. But I really like how ciphers work in Numenera or in cipher systems. So I want to bring that idea of ciphers over and have like single use magic items that have a powerful ability, but you can only use it once because I think it's a really good treasure that doesn't break the game or only breaks the game, but only breaks it once. And I can improv and that way I can give meaningful, interesting treasure that isn't just money that isn't going to break the game. Really good concept. Or maybe I like the escalation die from 13th age and, or maybe I like the one unique thing from 13th age. There's lots of stuff from 13th age that we can bring over. I like the abstract distance. 13th age has tons of stuff I like. Abstract distances, random rolling for the number of targets in an area of effect, the icon system, the one unique thing, the escalation die, lots of stuff that we can take from 13th age. Oh, I really like that. And then in another way, we could take things from 5th edition and bring them to other games. Shadow Dark RPG has inspiration. In it. it has the idea of, it has a luck system in there and it also has advantage and disadvantage because the advantage, disadvantage idea that came with 5th edition is really, really good and really simple and really powerful and we can just bring that over. So it's really good to have systems and know what systems are, are easiest for you to play and you're probably only going to get this from playing a lot of different systems trying a lot of different systems which is a worthwhile activity but also looking around and going "Ooh, that is a really interesting way that they handled this thing and that would be easier for me than what i'm currently doing with the games that i'm running i think that's a pretty powerful lazy idea always you know 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 what works well for you but then also keep your eyes open and as you see new things that you think might work try them out see if they work if they do add them to your toolbox if they don't you don't ever have to touch it again really powerful way to kind of have an evolving system over many years this is something that i've been doing for a long time and i'm always learning new things and i'm always coming up with a new idea so focus on what works well for you focus on the systems you like and and get a good understanding of like am i having trouble with this as a gm and then look around at other systems and see what they have and see like ooh, that's something that i could take and bring into my system because it's straightforward and it's easy to use and it makes running a game really well so that's the main conclusion that i came to from looking at gm friendly systems like what system i was hoping i don't know why naively i was hoping that i would hear about oh this one system, it's just so easy to use. Everybody loves it. Fiasco. Fiasco is the easiest system in the world because you don't need a GM. That's true. I don't know if I... Fiasco is a role-playing game, kind of. 
It's different than the kind of style of game that we typically have where you have a GM and a bunch of players. But from the ones where you have a GM and a bunch of players, obviously a lot of different views. And the reality that I saw from the small sample that I looked at was there isn't one clear one. That, oh, of course, it's this. Like everybody thinks this one's the easiest. That's not true. Lots of people have that, lots of different systems. Which is a conclusion I should have expected, but but you know didn't come to when I first came to it. So if you only take one thing from this quick little segment, that one thing would be know that the system that you like that works well for you is is fine stick with that but always be keeping your eyes out for other systems and other ideas steal the ideas from them that work well bring them into your game try to use them see if they work if they don't throw them out if they do you can add it to your toolbox and continue to use them onward that way you're always kind of evolving a system sort of slowly you're not just throwing your system away and come up with a new system every time evolving your system as you go and coming up with the one that's a little bit better every session about the one that works well for you let us look at some Patreon questions. Every month on the Sly Flourish Patreon, we we put up a Patreon Q&A. Anybody can put up a question. Any patron can put up a question there that's RPG related. I spend my Friday morning answering every question that's there. Some of those come here to the talk show. Other ones I will make an article or a video about. So let us dive in. The obviousness says, I've been looking for a good campaign to run after I finish Rhyme of the Frostmaiden. After the disjointed hellscape that comprises the sandbox making up that campaign, I am, I'm after a solid 5e campaign that has a linear design, side quests aplenty, and lots of options for players to get distracted, but the main campaign having more a more linear design. As a bonus question, what are your thoughts on linear versus railroad? Pointy Hat did a great video on this, and I was interested in your thoughts. Feel free to ignore the cheeky second question in there yeah because it's like yeah you cheated you got two questions so linear i mean a lot of the adventures can be as linear as you want them to be based on what you bring because again if you think about adventures published adventures are toolkits that you can use you can narrow them down yourself. You could narrow down Rhyme of the Frostmaiden if you want and skip a lot of the side quests. And I kind of did, right? I added, instead of it was like, oh, you go wander and fight a bunch of gnolls and then you come back worse, worse than you started. I, I had options for them on what they wanted to do. And I had, I had things that were important for the quest to move forward. So moving MacGuffins, having MacGuffins, having these objects that are required in order for the story to proceed, moving those around from place to place, using those as a way for the characters to decide where they're going to go. That, that's an approach that works well for me. It's one that I've used in almost all the campaigns that I have, whether it's Scarlet Citadel, which is another sort of sandbox mega dungeon. But then I added, we, we, we together, the players and I added sort of an overall story to it. And then I added the MacGuffins, which are these like four dodecahedrons that the characters have to find i'm running a more sandbox style adventure now but i have sort of an overarching plot around it in my shadowed keep of the borderlands game empire of the ghouls is definitely more of a linear adventure where chapter structures and major events that are happening in each chapter that move it forward from one chapter to the other and even things like the horde of the dragon queen rise of tiamat known as the tyranny of dragons that is definitely a more linear adventure where it goes from first level you're saving a village from being attacked all the way to stopping tiamat from rising out of a big portal to hell so lots of different ones I don't, I mean, on the idea of like linear, being linear versus a railroad, I don't really, I don't know that the terms are all that valuable. You know, I think that it's when we dig into kind of the details of, of what we want or what we're bringing forward to our players, that matters more. And, and kind of arguing about linear versus railroading, I don't, I don't really, I've never really found it to be a particularly useful argument because situations are so different. And 
you know, there, there are very different styles of games. And you could look at, I, you know, I was talking about this yesterday. I don't remember who with, I was talking to somebody about this. And we were talking about how the different Wizards of the Coast published adventures had changed from very linear, from like Horde of the Dragon Queen, Rise of Tiamat, to kind of semi-linear with like Out of the Abyss, to sort of like you could pick any one of the locations, but the, move, the things moving forward anyway, like Prince of the Apocalypse. Curse of Strahd, which is sort of like the yam-shaped adventure of you a clear start and a clear end, but you could kind of pick different places in the middle. And then you have like Storm King's Thunder, which is like you travel all over the Sword Coast. Like it's a 4,000 mile, kind of go wherever you want. And there's 72 adventure locations that each have a thing. A very, very sandbox, you know, I would say Storm King's Thunder was definitely a more sandbox style adventure than and pretty much anything Wizards has done since. And then you get more sort of like linear, but three path, like your descent into Avernus. There's so many different paths. Tomb of Annihilation, which is like a hex crawl that starts in one place, it ends in one place, but has a big hex crawl in the middle. So there's so many different sort of models that fit those adventures that I, I think trying to put them into like sandbox versus railroad, which is a common false dichotomy. I don't really think it matters that much. And a lot of it matters on like what your players are interested in, what kind of adventure you want to run, what style you run it. Like I have a particular model that I like. I sort of like that yam shaped adventure idea. I like that you start in a clear place that has a clear mission. I like to have a clear focus on what the campaign is about and what direction they're heading. And then I like to put lots of options in front of people. I like to have sort of this network of three different options that you're going forward. You have three choices. You pick one, maybe the other two go away, or maybe you can pick one of the other ones later, but then the third one goes away that's sort of like the dragon of ice fire peak style that i really like and that that sort of all works well so there's there's again in the same way that there isn't like a clear rpg that's the most gm friendly in the same way there isn't a clear model for adventures that is just the ideal model different sorts of adventures are going to work well for different kinds of players very linear adventures are going to work differently than more sandbox style adventures and and yeah and i think it's more useful to look at specific adventures, either the ones that you are kind of building for your players or the ones that you are, the ones that you read and kind of understanding that you know, specificity matters more than the general ideas of looking at linear adventure versus a railroad versus sandbox or, or completely open-ended. So I, I don't, I'm, 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 I'm kind of hedging on your second question there, but it is a second question. So I get to do whatever I want with it, but I don't think, yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's, to me, the more interesting question is looking at specific adventures and the models that kind of work well and the things that we pick up. To me, the idea of like the three of five keys quest model or the seven samurai adventure scenario, like these are styles and models that I think are work better because they're more specific. You know what happens in a seven samurai style adventure. You know that the characters have been recruited by, and, and I'm, I'm being, you know, specific but he could be even vaguer than this the the characters are are conscripted or, or hired by villagers to protect them from bandits who are going to attack them you know you think like wow that's the simplest dumbest storyline in the world but wow there's so many different ways you can take that model there's so many there's a lot of options the characters have lots of options about how they want to take it they have a clear goal but it can still work there's lots of neat things like that and the lazy dm's companion has a whole bunch of these different kinds of models in it and i think those models are more useful than general the idea of a general model of linear versus railroad versus sandbox versus completely open in adventure design i don't i don't i think that it's more you know saying like hey we want to build an adventure model around jaws where there's a big monster that's out there that's been killing people and it's got a bunch of people that are protecting it and then a bunch of people that are trying to fight against it but you never really know where it is and you're trying to hunt it down to figure out where its lair is that's a model that you can use 
So I hope that kind of answers your question. I don't know. I'm kind of hedging. I'm kind of hedging on that. Spike H says, I am using Forge of Foes. Yay. To create rival adventurers for my party. Besides using your book, what other advice can you give to make adventurer NPCs or NPCs with class levels? I'm going to go back to a very common, you know, I put this in here because I like to bang my hammer on this flavor. Flavor is such a powerful way to make monsters different without actually changing their mechanics. You can do so much with flavor to make two different creatures seem completely different from one another and yet still use the under the same underlying stat block. So Forge of Foes, we have these sort of basic underlying stat blocks. You can use those just as is, but then you can also add on any of those monster powers, any of the monster powers that we have throughout the book to make a character different than another. If you're running a rival adventuring group, I would probably not give them any more than one monster power that to, for each one. And even then, that's probably too many. That probably some of those characters, like your fight, if you're fighting a rival fighter, the rival fighter probably doesn't need a lot of mechanics. Maybe you give him one thing. But even then, you probably just have him attack and it would be fine, especially if he hits hard. So you, you, you don't really have to add a lot of stuff. I don't think I'd bother with class levels. But if you wanted to, if you wanted to clarify that a rogue, that one of the characters is a rogue, you can pick a single rogue ability that rogues typically get, like cunning action or like sneak attack or maybe, maybe both, and tie it to a, a, a typical NPC stat block so they feel like a rogue. Wizards are easy. You can just throw wizard spells on them. Clerics, again, same thing. You can have them do things like spirit weapon or spiritual guardians or things that make them look like a cleric. But then it's also really interesting to have them behave differently than the characters do so maybe it's not just if it's a death cleric maybe his spirit guardians is actually all necrotic damage or his spirit weapon is a great big scythe or maybe he has other spells that he can do that are different from what the characters are able to do and those you can just sort of reflavor but i'm you know you're asking the lazy dm right i'm 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 lazy and my lazy approach for this is most of the time your players aren't really going to care they don't the players are not nearly as interested in the weird inner workings of monster mechanics than us gms are and we don't have to be if you're into it great but if you're not into it you don't you don't have to be so i wouldn't worry about it I wouldn't worry about it too much. I would go ahead and let your, I would, I would go ahead and use the base stat blocks and use, maybe use like one or two monster powers when you need to. Siren says, really love the Forge of Foes preview and looking forward to the book. Hey, another Forge of Foes one. When you run, when you run downtime, how do you get your players to think on what they'd like to do? I've just come out of a session where my players weren't sure what they wanted to do and realized possibilities after the session. I mentioned it at the end of the previous session and linked to the DMG and Xanathar's pages for them as a reference. Yeah, downtime is really tricky. And what I like to do is, is you, you as the GM are in the unique position that you both understand the characters and what they typically want and what kind of things they might be interested in and the world and what the world can do too. And you also know what those, what those downtime activities are that are listed in the DMG and Xanathars. And there's other books that have, that have downtime stuff as well. But what, what I like to do is during my prep, I like, if I know that downtime is coming in the future, I like to sit down and, and for, for each character, come up with a unique downtime option that I think they might bite on. And you can say like, you can do other things too. You can go carousing. You can go can pick up a magic item. You can go, you know, research stuff at the Sages Guild. But if you know that a character is going to lean, has a propensity to lean a certain way, 
come up with an interesting, unique downtime activity for them. You don't have to force it on it, but I bet you if you mention it to them, they're like, oh yeah, I definitely want to do that. So if you know a character has a relative that's missing and they want to go find more information, you can think ahead of time and you can do a little bit of planning about what's going to happen during that downtime scene. But customizing downtime options, I think is a really, really valuable way of handling downtime. The few times that I've run downtime that worked really well, because it's a hard thing to run. It's a little tricky. Pacing is really hard and separation of the party and all kinds of other issues that go on. The times where it's worked well for me are the times where I came up with downtime activities that really fit the current story, the current characters, the current things that they wanted to do, and I customized it around them. That that really worked best. So instead of asking them what they think they might want for their downtime session, instead offer think spend a little time to think up some options and offer those options to them and see see if they pick that up. Vero C says, after 1.5 years of DMing, when I look back, the main issue I see in my games was when I tried to force the story to progress in the direction I had in my mind mind rather than fully support my players decisions i think they're somewhere in the middle but yeah that's a common common issue looking back at your experience dming what do you see as your main issues and how did you address them i think my main issues was with falling in love with my monsters and it really hit during fourth edition more so than any, but it, it definitely happened in third edition too. I would build combat. I was really focused on combat encounters and I built combat encounters and I had like lots of interesting, like inner workings of how they were supposed to play out. And I had sort of themes in mind about how things would play out. And then the characters would come in and just destroy everything or they would play a different way or they'd use an ability that like I wasn't prepared for. And like, I always felt like it was an arms race. Fourth edition, this really hit a lot, but third edition too. I remember this happening with third edition as well, that I had like an arms race of like, if they had a new power, I then had to build an encounter that meant that that power couldn't, you know, couldn't help them as much as it did. Or I would come up with other ways for like, you know, different monuments that the, that the, you know, would have different powers that would thwart the player's ability to like knock down a monster. Now, third and fourth edition both had this problem that the character abilities outscaled monster powers significantly the higher level you got. So higher level characters could do things that you just couldn't deal with. They were just, it didn't, didn't matter what options you had. And that's why like legendary resistance, which was considered pretty controversial for, for fifth edition was valuable. That idea, like they can just make a saving throw. And that was like, everyone's like, Oh, and I was like, Oh, thank God there's something. And everyone else is like, I don't like it. Cause now that things doesn't work. And it, it just, you just blow it. And I'm like, I get it, but Holy cow, the op I, I played the opposite and it was worse. So I focused a lot of my attention in the third and fourth edition on the idea of like combat encounters are the main thing that happened in the game. And then the rest, the rest of the story was sort of like the connection tissue that just brought the story together. And I've changed that significantly as I've grown up more with fifth edition. And with fifth edition, I became a lot more comfortable improvising things. I was much happier with battles that were specifically just weaker, where it was easier for the characters to win. I'm, I'm you know, recently I've talked about lightning rod monsters. These are monsters that are intended to take these debilitating effects so that the player still gets the joy of using them, but you don't, your whole battle isn't completely destroyed because one monster disappeared. And I just care a little bit less about my monsters succeeding. I'm happier for the players to succeed. I, I like it when monsters fail saving throws. I like it when characters do critical hits. And there still are times where I have things that I want to go a certain way. I still don't want every boss monster to just get easily beaten. But I've there's there are tricks. First of all, fifth edition, I think, is a better designed version of D&D. I'm much happier with it than both third and fourth edition. 
And it means that it's easier for me to deal with these things. It's like the dials of monster difficulty. I can just have these four dials, the number of monsters, the amount of hit points those monsters have, the amount of damage that they do, and the number of attacks that they have. Those are very easy dials for me to twist to get battles to either be easier or harder, depending on what I feel the battle should feel like. So, but yeah, when I look back on my DM experience, the idea that that D&D was essentially a series of battles tied together by, by the sinew of a story and building those battles to have a particular feeling and then not having them meet that expectation, I think is something that I held on to a lot 10, 12 years ago. And now uh, I'm much happier. I, I'm enjoying my games a lot more. I don't know how they're going to turn out. I still throw really hard fights. I still also throw a lot of really easy fights. I still have boss monsters, but it's like, it's really fun for me to have those battles go in directions that I didn't really expect. So I think that that's a way that I've grown over the past 15 years. And, and I think it's made, I think it's made my game a lot better. Julia R says, I have tried to do cliffhanger endings for my game and my PCs always want to react and do things. So we end up playing a little longer and then the session fizzles out rather than ending with a bang. What can I do to telegraph that the big event cliffhanger is something that can be responded to next time? I will start to describe what happens and I'm gearing up to say, and that's where we'll pick up next time. But my players want to do a perception check and cast a spell. I want to keep their agency while still having a cool head. I think you just have to be a little bit more. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not there sitting with you, so I don't know, but you asked. And so I'll offer my advice. You know, I, I, I don't know why it's worked out for me, but for me, be able to say, and that's where we're going to end today's adventure has been a powerful line. And sometimes I got like, oh, I want to do it. And I said that ah, we'll have to do that next time. Persistence, I think is important. Cutting them off, holding, hold, you know, talk to the hand, right? Have them stop and say, before you do that, we're going to end the session there. Remember that. And we'll, the next session, we'll get into that. Don't, don't respond to it, right? If they say, wait, I want to roll a perception check. You say, next time you can roll a perception check or, oh, but I want to just cast this spell. Hang on to that spell and we'll see how that turns out. Instead of saying, because you, you know, all of the interactions in a role-playing game are players and GMs responding back and forth. I don't think the players can get very far if you stop responding. I, I think they can only say like, I want to cast a fireball right? Or I cast fireball. You say, we'll have to see how that turns out next time. That there is some that, you know, you, you need to be persistent with that. Rango of Arg says, some players don't like cliffhangers. I, I, I know that. I actually had a player just recently who was not really happy with a cliffhanger. And I get it, but that's, you know, the, the, the alternative is worse. Because I, I bet you many more players don't like a game that goes had half hour long and fizzles out right? Everybody's tired. Everybody want to go home. Half the players there have other things to do. So I think, you know, my games that we run from like seven to 10 PM, a lot of nights and like, I'm done. I'm tired. I don't want to run another fight that goes till 1030. So, and I know that there are other players and there are other GMs where their time is more flexible and they're willing to take that extra half hour. But if I see that a game is going to go long, if I'm like, we're going to start a fight and I want the fight to end, then I will uh, I'll ask them like, Hey, we have 15 minutes left. Are you guys good for another half hour for us to finish this fight? And sometimes they say, yes. Other times I say, I think we're going to, I think we're going to end right here. Now you might even end it a little bit earlier too. If you see that there's a spot where it's actually a little bit better to end it, but you know, it's going to be 10 minutes early. That's okay too. And if you can find a better spot to, to do it, where the players are going to be a little bit, makes a little bit more sense of the break. But yeah, there are some players who don't like cliffhangers, but I think that then maybe that's a session zero topic, right? If you have players that aren't really, ask them, hey, the way, one of the ways that I run my games is because this is like a serial based game, I'm going to be ending on cliffhangers that are right with everybody, right? And hopefully it is, 
right? Because I I know that's I do that all the time. One reason I do it is because it means you know where the strong start is going to be. You know what's you know where you're going. You know what's going to happen. And if it's like at the beginning of a fight, you know the first 45 minutes to hour and a half of your next game are are preset. Like you don't have to worry about that. And that's so nice. It's so nice to not have to worry about that kind of stuff. So you know, so I, that Julia, that is that is where that was where I would go. Code Chemist says, I'm considering running Light of Zaraxis. In your recent tips video, you suggested letting NPCs accumulate on the PC Spelljammer so that the PCs could develop relationships with them and they could play a role in the big final, big finale. I like this idea, but I'm worried my players will try to convince them to join them on their adventures, and I generally don't like tag-along NPCs. How can I keep these NPCs around, but keep them plausibly too busy to join the party? What did you do in your playthrough? I made it clear that they couldn't go on away missions, that they, that these, these NPCs, they would, they would just tell, either, there's two ways one is the npc tells them oh i think i'm just going to stay here on the ship but thanks for the offer All right or you just tell them hey these npcs are not tagalongs they're not going to go with you on your away missions they're going to they're going to have other things to do on the ship they can have other missions that they can go on for you but they're not going to be npcs that go with you and i think you just have to be direct again this is, falls under the common the common thing that i say which is just tell them right just tell your players explain to them as these npcs are coming on board they are not going to be going with you on your various missions and then if you want to maybe they do maybe especially if you have a player who's joining then a new player can pick up one of the npcs but i i agree with you like i mean i've talked about the problem with tagalong npcs all the time they, they steal spotlight away from the characters they or if, if a character is running them that means that character gets more spotlight than they should have there's all kinds of problems with having tag-along NPCs. I'm just not a, I'm not a fan. And I think the, the two ways to do it are one, the NPC tells them. And if that doesn't work, then you say, pause for a minute, just to let you know, all these guys that are on the boat, they're going to stay on the boat. They're not going to be your tag-along NPCs. You guys need to go on your own missions. And there you go. Does it break? Oh, why not? Why can't they come with us? All those reasons. A, you'd say, you know, because, because I say so, you know, but you can also explain to them. They take up too much spotlight time. They make balancing combat too difficult. You know, I don't know how to handle if they die. You know, lots of good reasons for NPCs not to not to not to be tagged along. But it did work really well. That idea of having the light of Zara having crew members join the light of Zaraxis over time, and then at the end they could have their sort of you know Mass Effect style meet up with all of your friends before you go in the big final battle. It worked really well. I was very happy with how that turned out. So I would I would recommend considering that for your considering that for your game. Friends, I want to thank all of you for hanging out with me today while we talked about all things in role-playing games. If you enjoyed this show and you want more material like this, please consider subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter. Doing so is absolutely free to sign up. You get a weekly RPG-related email sent directly to your inbox, plus a free adventure generator PDF. You can also support Sly Flourish directly through Patreon. Patrons get access to the City of Arches Sourcebook, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, Dedicated Discord Server, the monthly Q&A, and a whole bunch of other stuff. You can find a link to join the Patreon in the show notes below you can also pick up any of my books including return of the lazy dungeon master the lazy dms workbook or the lazy dms companion all available on the sly flourish bookstore please check them out i think you'll really dig them there are free samples of all those books thank you all very much have a great day and get out there and play a role-playing game